Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Before we get started today, we got to do some shouts out Woo-hoo. to our two new Patreon supporters. We've got Barb. And we've got Myrta. Yay! And they are both great. <laughs> Thank you for your support. And since it's been um, two years oh! of doing this, um, let's just do a quick run through of what our Patreon tiers are. Yep. So you can go to patreon.com slash the dirt podcast if you want to donate a monthly amount that helps keep this show going. And we have tiers that include dirt bag, which is a dollar a month. And for that, you get our monthly newsletter and a shout out. Total dirt bag is five dollars a month. You get the newsletter, the shout out and a nifty postcard if you want one. With your consent. The absolute dirtbag tier is $10 a month, and you get everything that I mentioned before, plus two of our monthly bonus episodes, Old News, where we round up the newest, oldest stuff from archaeology and anthropology, and Deep Cuts, where we go more deeply into kind of a, a tangential topic that we may have covered in the past month. And then finally, we have the Dirt After Dark tier, which is $20 a month. It's everything that I've mentioned, plus the Dirt After Dark monthly episodes featuring topics that are a little too spicy for the main feed. So that's patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. And if you want to support us that way, you can. If not, we're just thrilled that you listen on with the show. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week's episode is a sponsored one from Colleen for her brother for his birthday. (laughs) Happy birthday, John. Colleen's brother. So Colleen wrote to us saying, happy birthday to my favorite classicist dungeon master. Oh, which I read when we got the email as classical dungeon master. And I was like, do not tell me. That there are like schools of DMing. <laughs> There's a postmodernist like... <laughs> dungeon master, romantic dungeon master. Uh, she didn't say that though. So she continued to say, I would like to sponsor an episode for my brother's birthday about the Samnite culture in ancient Italy. He's especially interested in their settlement and land ownership practice. His Roman history class mentioned a religious festival every few years where young people would set out to found a new town. It's been difficult for him to find information about them outside of the context of the Samnite Wars. We're really grateful for the sources you provide at every episode, but he'd be over the moon if you could suggest a book club book. The only book we've been able to find was from the 1960s and therefore probably outdated. Well, Colleen and John, we have good news and other news. The good news is we do have a book recommendation and one that was written in 2015, so less outdated than the single other existing book about the Sam Knights. The reason you couldn't find any other books is because there aren't any. (laughs) Uh, And yeah, so that other one was uh, written by an author named Salmon. 
So it's like the Sam Nights by Salmon, which I enjoy. Uh, and it was published in 1967. So yes, indeed, you are right. It's outdated. 1960 Salmon? 1960 Salmon, yes. On to the other news. What that might tell you is that not a whole lot is written about the Samnites, at least not in comparison with, say, the Romans. So we are going to feature Samnites in this episode, but we're also going to talk about some of the other related groups that were kicking around the boot of Italy around the same time period. So who were the Samnites? First of all, that's not what they called themselves. So if you ask them who were the Samnites, they'd be like, mm -hmm. it's what the Romans called them. So that is called an exonym. So an exonym is a name that comes from without. Exo. So outside. Yes. Their own endonyms, the names that someone gives themselves. Inside names. Were saphonym for the country, which is attested in one inscription and one coin legend. So it's part of a coin. And saphonese for the people. So we've talked about this a lot. So we've talked about this with, you know, like we've got Easter Islanders, Rapa Nui, mm -hmm. and like countless other examples of the exonym, which it comes from an external, often kind of colonizing or like sort of imperial. Yeah. A, a power, a power wielding neighbor of some sort. Uh, usually the people who do the writing of history. Yeah. 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 <laughs> over them. And then you've got the name that's used internally. And so that's the endonym. So etymologically, the name Samnium is generally recognized to be a form of the name of the Sabines, who were Umbrians, another Italic people. So yes, all those people slanted slightly to the right. <laughs> so we don't have, <laughs> they're not related to the strike throughs or the bolds <laughs> or the superscripts. <laughs> Remember that time that you like had that hotkey for a superscript and everything <laughs> just kept going tiny? Google <laughs> trolled me so hard. I couldn't figure out what combination of keys I was touching, but then all of a sudden I'd be writing and the script would go tiny, tiny, tiny. It was like you were like whispering to me or like you had just done like a hit of helium or something off of a balloon and you were just like <laughs> very funny well played google <laughs> oh i it has done it since so i guess just like it was haunted that day or something <laughs> at some point in prehistory a population speaking a common language extended over both samnium and umbria it's thought that this was common italic and that one book that colleen and her brother mentioned puts forward a date of 600 bce after which the common language began to separate into dialects. So remember, these are the Italic languages, which is part of the Indo-European family. Da, so da, da. remember, we've da, da, da. so here's where the Italics is kind of splintered into other groups. So those dialects are collectively known as the Oscan language group, or sometimes the Osco-Umbrian languages. Modern knowledge of Oscan comes from some 250 documents and inscriptions written in several alphabets. A rustic or colonial Latin alphabet. There's like bark on it yeah, and they and like paint lap. it and then they like they use like sandpaper over it. That's mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's like faded. That's rustic. Yep. Yeah. Um, the Greek alphabet and a native alphabet derived from Etruscan. Although similar to Latin, Oscan shows a series of different sound shifts. Oscan asa, Latin ara, meaning alter. Oscan pid, Latin quid. What? what? And a divergent vocabulary. I mean, I have that they, were, they were talking about different stuff, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps.
Perhaps the best known of these languages is Umbrian, because of the preservation of artifacts called the Iguvian tablets. These are a series of seven bronze tablets from ancient Iguvium, modern Gubbio, Italy. Uh, the earliest tablets, written in the native Umbrian alphabet, were probably produced in the 3rd century BCE, and the latest, written in the Latin alphabet, from the 1st century BCE. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of interesting to see that, because that means that the Romans had gotten there by then. Yeah, and so it's like when you when you look at sort of shifts in alphabets that are used, mm-hmm. it says something about not only... Um, what's happening to the language, but who's using it. Yeah, who's doing the writing. And so yeah. what you're, who's doing the writing, but also who's doing the reading and who the audience was. Mm-hmm. And so what's like, if you have an audience of people who are perhaps um, multilingual, but not literate in multiple languages as, as readily. And so it's some, or it could be like a, a power thing, like who's in control and sort of, you see alphabets shift and you even see that in the past you know, 20, 30 years yeah. in in some states where you have um, alphabets that shift in alignment with other values. Um, but that, yeah, so about within about 200 years, whether like by convenience sake or like who, who knows? I don't. <laughs> we'll, we'll get we'll get <laughs> to knows? some of that. We'll get to some. Of, we'll get there. The tablets themselves contain religious inscriptions that memorialize the acts and rites of the Atidian Brethren, a group of 12 priests of Jupiter. That is Roman Zeus, remember? Yep. Um, Discovered in a farmer's field in the year 1444 CE, the tablets are currently housed in the Civic Museum of the Palazzo dei Consoli in Gubbio. Yeah. The tablets shed light on Umbrian vocabulary and grammar, and also on the religious practices of the ancient peoples of Italy, including the archaic religion of the Romans. The complete text, together with a translation into Latin, was published in London in 1863 by Francis Newman, and 1931 in a book by Albrecht von Blumenthal. They were translated into English and published by James W. Pulteney in 1959. Although the general meaning of the tablets is clear, there's still many obscure and debated points and issues. Because why not? Yeah. So along with your reference from 1967, John and Colleen, you can also get your hands on a reference from 1863, 1931, or 1959. We like to keep it current. And now, some Samnite history. If we're going with the date of 600 BCE for the beginning of separation of these Italic groups, then it seems like the Samnites took a century or two to coalesce before they began pushing into new territories. And this might be related to that practice Colleen mentioned of groups of young men going out to seek new territories when they came of age, although I couldn't find a specific source for this. And given the troubles I had finding any sources on the Samnites, it's no surprising that, you know... This this sparks something far at the back of my my memory of it being like a a festival like thing. A, like a festival yeah. yeah like a and it's sort of like go playing forth. at yeah. founding yeah um, I, I yeah I remember learning something about this I don't that's all <laughs> but well, I learned about it from that's... Colleen's email so this uh, following information comes from an article written in 1934 again we are keeping things current by Dio Robinson in the Classical Journal, and this article is called The Samnites in the Po Valley. Po as in the river, 
not like the sandwich pool boy. Or or the Teletubby, which is what I thought. Oh, yeah. The they Sam were... Knights and the Tinky Winky Valley. <laughs> oh, we went for different ones. My brain's in the La La Valley right now. But, like, Lala had, like, the strongest, like, femme energy. Was Lala the one with the purse? No, that was Tinky Winky. Look, this and was the after green one my was time. Dipsy. But yeah, she was after mine, too. <laughs> Why do you know so much about the Teletubbies? I, we, we didn't have cable. There are books. Shut up, nerd. <laughs> the Sam Knights, so I'm, I'm quoting Dio Robinson here. The Sam Knights were not content to confine themselves to this territory, i.e. their original homeland, but began to push into neighboring lands. Apulia, Brutium, and Lucania were overrun, nor did Campania escape their inroads. Capua was captured in 438 or 423 BC, and Cumae in 420. Nice. Nice. When Etruscan power south of the Tiber came to an end and Samnite influence spread over the whole of Campania. With the waning of Etruscan power, Italian history becomes a duel for supremacy between the Samnites and the Latin Roman League. <laughs> Do they have jackets? Or patches? Which brings us to the Samnite Wars. Boy, is there a lot about the Samnite Wars, and I have done my best to summarize it so that we don't have to spend the whole episode on it. The main source of information on the Samnite Wars is Titus Livius, or Livy if you want the anglicized version, a Roman historian who did his historian thing around 300 years after these wars. And he was Roman. So let's not expect a whole lot of objectivity from our boy Livy. So according to Livy, the first Samnite war started not because of any enmity between Rome and the Samnites, but due to a Samnite attack on the Sidicini. Well, I'm just winging that. A tribe living north of Campania. The Sidicini were no match for the Samnites, so they sought help from the Campanians. Campanians. Whatever. Tomato, tomato, potato. But the Samnites defeated the Campanians in a battle in Sidicine territory and then turned their attention towards Campania and defeated them in two big battles. And this compelled the Campanians to ask Rome for help. An envoy was sent to the Samnites, basically warning them off of Campania. Well, politely and firmly asking if they would leave that territory alone, according to Livy. But the Samnite response was pretty much a double middle finger salute and a, nope, we're going to go mess it up. And according to Livy's actual report, it was basically um, the Samnite delegation loudly gave orders to their guard outside the room where the Roman envoy was. And were just like, go destroy towns in Campania so that the Romans could hear them. Um, and indeed they did, prompting the Romans to mount a defense. The Romans had a number of military successes against the Samnites, and the eventual result was a peace treaty. But that didn't last. There was a second, and then a third Samnite war, and then Rome eventually defeated the Samnites pretty soundly. We're not going to give you the play-by-play -play of the wars, but if you're really into that- Because I would of, die. Yep. <laughs> we would- Amber and Die. I would just be very cranky for this whole episode. That's not our bag. But if you are really into that kind of thing, and, you know, we don't, no judgment, uh, you can check out mm. books seven and eight of Livy's histories. And if you want sort of a, a bibliographic place to start, check out the Wikipedia page on the Sam Knights for the bibliography at the bottom, because it is chock full of Livy. So what was it like to be a Sam Knight? Praise be. 
we found an article that was written in 2014, my God, so modern, that tackles the archaeology of the Samnites. And so I am quoting from Gender and Ritual in Ancient Italy, a Quantitative Approach to Grave Goods and Skeletal Data in Pre-Roman Samnium by Raphael Scopacasa. For many scholars, communities in Samnium stand out for their emphasis on warfare and warlike values. This cultural distinctiveness is supposedly manifest in a gender system of warrior men and householder women, which is thought to characterize the whole region from the late Iron Age, 7th and 6th centuries BCE, to the period of Roman hegemony, 3rd century BCE. The archaeological evidence presented in support of this view is a dichotomy between burials containing weapons and armor, including iron spears, axes, daggers, bronze helmets, breastplates, and burials featuring personal ornaments, including bronze and iron rings, pendants, arm rings, bracelets, collars, and chains, as well as glass and amber beads. Weapon and armor... Hello. Weapon and armor burials tend to be attributed to men, while those containing ornaments are attributed to women. Little pink bows. According to this interpretation, the weapon burials of Samnium indicate a gender system in which masculinity is equivalent to warriorhood. This mainstream view... <laughs> so mainstream. So normy. This, main <laughs> this mainstream view is based on the premise that certain grave goods can be associated with males or females, even without the support of skeletal data. Consequently, a circular argument comes into play. It should be noted, however, that almost all the surviving literary accounts of the Samnites were written beginning in the late 2nd century BCE and later, at least 200 years after the events to which they refer, and from a chiefly Roman perspective. These texts are loaded with ideological issues relevant to their late Republican and Imperial authors. It has recently been argued that the image of fearsome Samnite warriors, which is common in ancient literature, belongs to a Roman discourse based on the antithesis of Greeks versus barbarians, the latter being cast in the image of flashy armored Samnites. An excessive focus on weapons and personal ornaments therefore runs the risk of generating a limited or even distorted picture of gender roles and consequently of cultural practices in ancient Italy more broadly. So the archaeology covered in this article includes 194 burials distributed among 10 different funerary sites. I'll mention a few of them, but not all of them. These are mostly simple pit burials. Um, there's no cremation, so some of the skeletal evidence was present, which is helpful. And burials, uh, the team who analyzed these burials grouped individuals into three classes based on the amount of available information on the sex and age of the individuals in question. And that includes sub-adults, age zero to nine, young slash prime adults, which is ages 10 to 40. I felt good to be included in that. It's like in your prime, in, in my prime years uh, and mature adults over 40. And so here are the results. Weapon burials vary with time periods. During some phases, there are tons of burials that include weapons, but during other periods, there's an almost complete absence of weapon burials. In the 5th century, many high-standing males at Campo Consolino, one of those 10 burial sites, were buried with lavish drinking sets rather than with weapons and armor. The shift can be seen as confirmation that social standing in central Italy was increasingly being symbolized not in the language of warriorhood, but through material culture associated with the spheres of athletics and banqueting, as is visible in the numerous 4th and 3rd century tombs at Fossa, another burial site that contain bronze and iron strigils. Those are Ditch. the... Hmm? Ditch? Yeah, the, the town is called Hole. 
Hi. It's just like, welcome that's, to Ditch. <laughs> yeah. That's what, right? That's Fossa, yeah. Rida in Fossa Est. Is, yes. Yeah. <laughs> if you used Eke Romane to study Latin, Rida in Fossa Est for like six chapters. Um, <laughs> Now, what I was going to say about strigils is those are the uh, uh, Romans typically, and apparently Samnites, use them to um, scrape off dirt and goop when they clean themselves. So in addition to bronze and iron strigils, there were large sets of drinking vessels in those tombs at Ditch. (laughs) Much of the gender fluidity detected earlier in San Vincenzo al Volturno that's great. That feels good. In Why'd the house. you say it like a vampire? <laughs> you put like a little Dracula's like, yeah, I, flourish yeah. on the last word. I, I don't know. Count Dorkula over here. <laughs> uh, and later at Campo Consolino is echoed at the new site of Morgia della Chiusa. Both the material culture and skeletal evidence at Morgia seem to point to a context in which men and women are treated equally by social conventions. To begin with, grave goods are very few and evenly distributed. Personal ornaments, such as fibulae, which are decorative pins and not... They're for, like, fixing um, fixing a cloak cloak, or a scarf or something. Not your lateral leg bones. Are found with males, females, and subadults, and do not vary stylistically according to the sex and age of the deceased. So everybody gets a cloak. The same can be said of Campanian black gloss cups, which are common at the site. Weapons, in contrast, are found with three of the nine males, two of the unsexed adults, and one of the three subadults who is buried with an iron spear. Such a scenario suggests that weapons may have been connected to, with male identity, and that there were also other factors involved in their distribution. Guess what? It's more complex than you think, because it always is. Age does not seem to have been one of these factors, since of the three weapon-bearing males, one is a prime adult and the other is a mature adult, and the age of the third male cannot be determined. Special status... That, ba- was, a, hmm? that was a that was a great album from Aaliyah. Age does not seem to have been one of these factors. It's a great album. <laughs> R.I.P. <laughs> Special status, therefore, emerges as a likely explanation for the distribution of weapons. So it's not necessarily connected to age and not really connected to sex, although it seems to be you know, males, but that's not the only reason they have weapons. It's a status thing. The evidence suggests the existence of gender fluidity and perhaps even equality in Samnium, where it seems that women may have engaged in commensal politics in the 5th century BCE. It remains to be seen whether this phenomenon indicates wider historical processes. So this is why archaeology is so important. The real story isn't always what gets written down 300 years after the fact by other people. Go figure. So while we're figuring, let's have a quick ad. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com.
Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. All right. So now that we're back, let's move on to some of the Sam Knight's neighbors, the Umbri. The Italian region of Umbria takes its name from them, though they originally occupied a bit more territory than the current regional boundaries suggest. And can I say, this is, I sent, I sent you a photo of this, but this is where I found that post. I was, you know, really mining the internet for sources on these groups. And I found a page that was like, were the Umbrians the lost tribe of Israel? And I had to go take a rest. I just had to leave the room. You sent me that? I did. I sent you a, was that a the screenshot. One you sent me? I thought you sent I sent you a screenshot of the page just being like, why? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you did send me. I just remember the killing by chilling. Killing and chilling. Maybe I didn't, you, maybe <laughs> I didn't see the other one. Um, yeah, no, I uh, so uh, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> gonna gonna read gonna read you a real quick entry from the um super judgy encyclopedia. Britannica. Yep. Um, Umbri, in English, Umbrians, um, ancient pre-Etruscan people who gradually concentrated in Umbria, in central Italy, in response to Etruscan and Gallic pressure. By about 400 BC, the inhabitants of this area spoke an Indo-European dialect closely related to Oscan, Umbrian. It is best known from ritual texts called the Iguvine Tables. Uh, the Umbri never fought any important wars against the Romans. In the Social War, 90 to 89 BCE, uh, for instance, they joined the rebel allies tardily and were among the first to make peace with Rome. So they were just like little surrender monkeys who were late to the party. Ancient authors describe the Umbri as closely resembling their Etruscan enemies and their habits. And the Umbrian alphabet was undoubtedly of Etruscan origin. Isn't that so judgy? It's like it's a uh, slant the, to that. Yeah, the yeah, Umbria is completely derivative. And um, so here's here's something from a site with the a very legitimate name, keytoumbria.com. <laughs> I checked. The sources are actually legit. <laughs> They're just organized um, in this forum called keytoumbria.com. Um, at the dawn of history, an ancient people that the Romans later knew as the Umbrians occupied much of central Italy. Uh, the Greek historian Dionysius of Halicarnassus, whose Roman Antiquities was published in Rome in 7 BCE, recorded that these people, whom he called by their Greek name, the Umbrici, originally inhabited much of central Italy and were a great and ancient people. Yep, that's what he had to say about them. <laughs> <laughs> that's like the kind of quote that you see from somebody who got completely panned by a critic but they're trying to like yeah. make it sound good yes yeah, it's, it's, it's it's like it starts with an ellipsis <laughs> it's the featured quote on the back of a really bad book yeah um almost a century later plenty the elder went a little further 
saying. The Umbrians are said to be a gens antiquissima Italiae, a most ancient people of Italy, and are thought to have been designated as Umbri by the Greeks on account of their having survived the rains of the flood. Cool. This is in natural history. Yep. Uh, Umbri generally translates to of the clouds. So they're cloud people? <laughs> yep, I guess. <laughs> I think that factored into the are they Israelites thing. I was like, no. Oh, that they like post flood. Yeah, okay. I mean, in a way, but like that's surely that's not what people thought. That's not how people put that connection together because I, that is that is weak even for that. I mean, let's just keep I mean, going. We all we all are post diluvian <laughs> yeah, yep. if you want to. Yep. Umbrians used a language that, at least from the 5th century BC onward, was written using an Etruscan alphabet, um, as evidenced by surviving inscriptions. We'll have a link in the show notes to a page from keytoumbria.com with a... a <laughs> it's just not like dot biz, <laughs> so you know it's legit. Um, with a catalog of said inscriptions, a, a table... <laughs> of tables, if you will. If you'd like to take a closer look, again, just like with the Samnites, we are reliant on Greek and Roman historians for our knowledge of the history of the ancient Umbrians. So it's a definitely not an objective source and probably maybe not a completely accurate one either. See above people's just clouds. All, all of it. <laughs> Greek and Roman historians generally referred to the ancient Umbrians without differentiating between them. Do you mean among them? Yes. There were a lot, right? Okay. Um, what if they were talking about two at a time? Greek and Roman historians generally referred to the ancient Umbrians without differentiating among them. Thus, for example, Cicero, uh, in a book <laughs> on the ancient art of divination that he pushed out around 44 BCE, noted that, quote, the people of Etruria are very skillful in observing thunderbolts and in interpreting their meaning and that of every sign important. Other peoples rely chiefly on the signs conveyed by the flight of birds. For example, according to tradition, this used to be the case in Umbria. I didn't know that Cicero wrote anything about divination. Not that I care. Oh, Just... what, no, he wrote, no, because this was, he wrote that like during his like, I'm going to go be a guy on a farm. Oh, it was like his, his retirement. His rusticating phase. Oh, man. Yeah. I really don't, do not care for Cicero. Mm his work or his legacy. <laughs> what else did he say, though? Elsewhere in De Divinatione, uh, Di I believe that the character of the country determined the kind of divination that its inhabitants adopted. For example, those peoples that were chiefly engaged in the rearing of cattle and were therefore constantly wandering over the plains and mountains in all seasons, found it quite easy to study the songs and flights of birds. This is true, inter alia, of Nostre Umbre, our fellow countrymen, the Umbrians. Yep. That's condescending. So that's what he said. Yep. <laughs> yep. Uh, so speaking of the mystical, mm. were we talking about mystical? You know, divination and stuff. Oh, not the artist. Oh, no. It is time <laughs> it's time once again to speak very briefly about the mother goddess, or 
ah, mother goddess anyway, because a number of those surviving Umbrian inscriptions mention a goddess named Cupra. So let me tell you the amount of pagan and Wiccan websites that I accidentally found myself on because I got excited by a link and was like, oh, maybe this will help. No. Um, so the inscriptions include four from Plestia that date for, to the 4th century BC, which read Cupras, Matres Platinas, Sacruesu. I am a sacred to Cupra, the mother of the Plestini. Mm-hmm. And a fifth from Helwilum, which dates to... Uh, circa 150 BCE and uses the Latin alphabet contains the phrase Cubrar Matrer Bio Eso, which probably means this is the Bia, all right, (laughs) which is probably a fountain or maybe a water from a fountain of Cupra Mater. Cupra seems to have been associated with fertility and isn't much known outside of Umbrian and Etruscan contexts. Nope. So, for more ancient Umbrian stuff, you can find this really huge dissertation on ancient Umbrian religious spaces and change through time with the development of Roman control over the territory. We'll include a link to that in the show notes it's because like it's a very cool. 500 pages long. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's so really somebody, good, though. Yeah. And then we have a book recommendation, but not the book recommendation. Right. Well, because this, Colleen asked specifically for a book on the Samnites, and we do I have know, one to I recommend, know. but this is not that. So this is just a book recommendation mm-hmm. uh, called, well, a book, a book named Ancient Umbria, State, Culture, and Identity in Central Italy from the Iron Age to the Augustan Era by Guy. Guy? I don't know. But the next, I was like, Guy Julien. Bradley. <laughs> like where I was going with it. <laughs> with Guy Bradley. Um, Guy Jolion Bradley yep. is the author of that. So um, while we're out here plugging things, let's just kick it over to an ad. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. Okay, we're back. And we mentioned the Etruscans a few times, so let's talk about them. They are one of the more well-known of the pre-Roman Italic groups, and so they might very well get their own episode one day. So, But it seems silly to leave them out entirely, so we will do a brief overview here. The earliest evidence for Etruscan culture, as in a suite of material culture that is recognizable as Etruscan, shows up in the archaeological record around 900 BCE, much like 
Samnite, the word Etruscan is not what this group called themselves. They called themselves Rasena, which was shortened to Rasna or Rasna. In Attic Greek, the Etruscans were known as Tyrrhenians or Tyrrhenoi, um, from which the Romans derived the name oh. Tyrrheni and Mare Tyrrhenum, the Tyrrhenian Sea, prompting some to associate them with the Teresh, one of the sea peoples named by the Egyptians. We've mentioned sea peoples before um, in a color episode, should... right? Yeah, well, because yeah, purple. because we were talking about Tyrian purple, which is which is Tyre, which is not Tyrrhenia. Ty- oh, right, that's yeah. different. That's different. Not, not Tyrrhenia. That's my they're bad. Di- they're totally different, but it's the same. But Tyre is it was a Phoenician city, and the uh, Phoenicians were big into the sea. <laughs> and and so it. at the at the end of the bronze the reason why the bronze age ends ends um is there is a sort of major there, there's a lot of indicators of collapse of um sort of economic and like diplomatic relationships among sort of the club of powers around the Mediterranean mm-hmm. and um it, like stuff gets weird <laughs> and so if you're if you're an old-timey archaeologist or not so old-timey archaeologist or classicist that's like looking at like you're sort of tracking the the movements of like elite populations because you're into that you know kings or priests or whatever that is like sort of top level stuff you you're seeing like oh there's like all this stuff's going on and things are collapsing and society's falling apart and everybody's talking about the sea peoples. And so there's just sort of this kind of long, there's this like long shadow of the sea peoples and, and looking at like sort of the end of the bronze age and just like, who are they? What were they doing? And they make them sound like the Joker that they're just like, total anarchist just out there to like watch the world burn uh but we should t- we'll talk about the sea people sometimes yeah but but they're also just like who were they let's find them were, was it you and there's like a lot of like weird finger pointing but um <laughs> were not they today. a lost tribe of israel no no they were not okay the ancient well- <laughs> <laughs> get out no. um <laughs> The ancient Romans referred to the Etruscans as the Tusci or Etruski, singular Tuscus. <laughs> I don't know why that, that tickles me. Tuscus. Their Roman name is the origin of the term Tuscana, which re- refers to their heartland, and Etruria, which can refer to the wider region. The term Tusci is thought by linguists to have been the Umbrian word for Etruscan based on an inscription on an ancient bronze tablet from a nearby region. Guess what that was? It was... The Iguvine table, tablet. Um, Tableau. Tableau. A widely cited hypothesis is that the root of the word Etruscan, like the Latin word tourist, means tower and comes from the Greek word for tower, tursus. On this hypothesis, the Tuski were called the people who build towers or the tower builders. <laughs> okay. This proposed etymology is made more plausible because the Etruscans preferred to build their towns on high precipices reinforced by walls, which no one else did. I mean, who didn't? Right? We all do it. You know it. I know it. We all do it. Just come on. If you've been to any major art museum in the U.S. with a classical world section, you are likely to have seen some Etruscan art. 
particularly strong in this art tradition, were figurative sculpture in terracotta, particularly life-size on sarcophagi or temples. There's a lot of really, uh, I, I happen to think that um, Etruscan sculpture is really beautiful. It t- tends to be very lifelike. And- and they just stare right through you. They do, yeah. Well, it's those blank if you, eyes. If, if you want to get completely stared down, <laughs> buy some terracotta. Why do you go to museums antagonizing Etruscan sculpture? I just, like... Don't make eye contact, <laughs> Amber. It's just, that, like, it, the, the eyes follow you because they're Because they don't have pupils. Just, That's why. I know. They're just, like... Watching you. So there's those. There's those. Uh, there's, there's those. There's, there are <laughs> they wall, will haunt you. There are wall paintings and there's metalworking, especially engraved bronze mirrors, probably mm-hmm. also haunted. Etruscan sculpture in cast bronze was famous and widely exported, but like many other bronze large items from antiquity, few large examples have survived because the material was too valuable and was melted down later for other stuff. Most surviving Etruscan art comes from tombs, including all the fresco wall paintings, which show scenes of feasting and some narrative mythological subjects. Etruscan temples were heavily decorated with colorfully painted terracotta antifixes and other fittings, just stuff on the walls, which survive in large numbers where the wooden superstructure has vanished. It sounds like it's describing the interior of a Buca de Beppo. <laughs> like that. that's exactly what the, that and like low key kind of also Olive Garden because they also kind of pull from the Tuscan countryside idea. I, and- <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Yep. It's a it's a strong Italian grandma interior La design nonna. vibe. See. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> Etruscan art was strongly connected to religion, most, much like most Italian grandmas. <laughs> <laughs> the afterlife was of major importance in Etruscan art. Oh, <laughs> I miss my grandma. The Etruscan musical instruments seen in frescoes and bas-reliefs are different types of pipes, such as the plagiaulos, the pipes of pan or syrinx, the alabaster pipe, and the famous double pipes which we talked about on our music episode where you have to like strap them to your face uh, accompanied on. And that's the one where there's like the one pipe that's just like, uh, and then the other one like actually plays a melody. Am I making this up? There's one that's like a drone. A drone. Um, I don't, and then the other is a, is a, I think, well, more dynamic, I, something like that. Yeah. Uh, and those uh, are accompanied <laughs> on percussion instruments, such as the tintinabulum, tympanum. Nice and crotales, and later by stringed instruments like the lyre and kithara. And the accordion, to continue with the, the Nana vibe. Oh. I'm just, I'm just thinking back to, <laughs> she would take requests. Oh, that's right. But she only knew two songs. That's right. I, <laughs> so I thought she would just <laughs> sing the lyrics over one of the two songs. <laughs> well, to wrap up this episode... We thought we'd stick with the Etruscans. You thought I was going to go back and talk about Cicero some more. We're going to talk about the Etruscans and a subject that was likely near and dear to their hearts, as it still is today for people living in the Italian region that still bears their name. Tuscany. So this comes from Smithsonian Magazine, which would like to... (laughs) (laughs) We use cookies! (laughs) And uh, we've referenced it before, uh, not not 
Not well, Smithsonian. Well, we also yeah. referenced Smithsonian's magazine. Uh, but we referenced this subject in our early episode on old, 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 old wine and cheese. <clears throat> French winemakers first learned their trade from the Etruscans, an ancient Italian civilization, kicking off domestic production around 500, no, 525 BCE. Archaeologists have long thought that the Etruscans bought, brought wine and winemaking to southern France. But a study by Patrick McGovern, who l- listeners will know is the archaeological booze guy um, at UPenn, and his team firmed up that assumption. They tested the residue found at the bottom of ancient Etruscan amphorae collected from a site in southern France. At the time, Amphoras were used as shipping containers, carrying wine and olive oil and other products around the Mediterranean. Chemical analyses of ancient organic compounds absorbed into the pottery fabrics of imported Etruscan amphoras, dating around 500 to 475 BCE, and into a limestone pressing platform, um, dated to around 425 to 400 BCE. Those are two things they tested. They're not implying that it took 75 years. to right. Get <laughs> to get stuff there, um, although it may have felt like it. At the ancient coastal port site of Latara in southern France, provide the earliest biomolecular archaeological evidence for grape wine and viniculture in this country, which is crucial to the later history of wine in, in Europe and the rest of the world. But the history of winemaking stretches back much, much further. The civilizations of the ancient Near East had been producing wine since at least as early as the Neolithic era, from around 10,000 to 2,000 BCE. It's a lot of wine. Somewhere in there. They figured it out. In archaeology, understanding when and how ancient cultures met and collaborated is a difficult challenge. But the flow of wine, say the scientists in their study, can be used to track these connections. If you wanted a taste of the old world, say the authors in their study, the closest modern approximation of the ancient wines would be a nice Greek retsina, a wine that bears the taste of pine resin, a material that was used to seal the amphoras during shipping. So we'll leave the Etruscans there for now. We don't want to give too much away for future episodes when this terracottas come back and haunt us again. And so Colleen and John, we lift our wine glasses to you to say thank you for sponsoring this episode and happy birthday, John. It was fun to learn about these lesser known cultures. And as promised, we do have a book to recommend. It's an academic title, so it might be a little tricky to get your hands on it, but we will put the WorldCat reference up on the show notes. And that is Ancient Samnium, Settlement, Culture, and Identity Between History and Archaeology by the same author uh, of the archaeological article that we quoted before, Rafael Scopacasa. And so that was published in 2015, which is a bit of an improvement on 1967. Although, you know, the Samnites aren't getting any deader, so... (laughs) 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 <laughs> only the oh um, you know the archaeology is what's changing and that's important so thank you everyone for listening and we will be back in your ears very soon with more content yeah and so um felix dies natalis john yon yeah yes, i would say uh, in latin it's it, um, itawero rida in fasa est oh geez i haven't retained much <sighs> no <laughs>
But until then, you can find us not speaking Latin on social media um, over on Facebook. We're the Dirt Podcast on Twitter. We're at the Dirt Podcast and on Insta. Hit us on the gram uh, at uh. the Dirt Pod. <laughs> and also we collaborated with um, Stefan Milo. Wonderful, wonderful creator, oh, Stefan Milo. He's the best. Um, and so we got a video on YouTube now. So if you're listening to us after finding us on YouTube. Hi. Salway. Salwate. Gratias Tibiago. Hey. I remembered one. Yeah, but if you're if you haven't watched it yet and you're curious and want to see what hap- what happens when we try to do videos, uh the answer is we just narrate them and Stefan just does a magnificent job. With Yeah, we all know what happens when we try to do videos. Woofa doofa. Um <laughs> Yeah, just all you have to do is search uh, Stefan Milo, S-T-E-F-A-N-M-I-L-O, Venus figurines on the YouTubes, and we'll pop up. And it's it's a fun video, so we hope you like it. And if you want to see all of our social media smooshed together on one page, you can go to thedirtpod.com for all of that, as well as all of our backlog and archive of episodes. We have so many! We're almost at a hundred. a backlog? I didn't mean backlog. I meant archive. <laughs> I meant back. I meant back catalog. You just and I. I elided, you just those, elided two, yeah. those two. <laughs> I I smashed the words together in my brain because it's ninety five degrees in this room and I'm dying. You can also find on the dirtpod.com, You can find merch. We've got some sweet merch designs, and you can also find the button that says "Sponsor an Episode." If you like Colleen, want to sponsor an episode on a topic of your choice, go to the dirtpod.com, click on the news section, and that'll take you straight to a link that says "Sponsor an Episode" with our silly faces on it. So, you can do that if you like. Uh, but the best way that you can support us is by listening, by leaving reviews and stars on all the places and platforms that uh, support podcasts like Spotify, Google Play, etc. And um, tell your friends and your enemies all about us. And thank you. Yeah. Hello to um, enemies. Hi, enemies. Hello. Great to have you here. Acquaintances, frenemies, perhaps. Uh, do you do you equate acquaintances and frenemies? No, no. Is, this was too- is, is a stranger just a frenemy you haven't made yet? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody. We love you. Uh, bye. Goodbye. Wale. I was going to say, what's Wale. goodbye in Latin? <laughs> I know. That's uh, what I was that's, looking that's up. My- <laughs> um, that's, that's my favorite Pixar movie. <laughs> oh, no. Um, bye. Uh, well, Wale. Good- say it to everyone. Goodbye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.